One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Jim Shepard, author of seven novels and four short story collections. His third, called Like You'd Understand Anyway, was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the Story Prize. His latest novel, The Book of Aaron, tells the story of a young Polish boy whose family is driven by the Germans from the countryside into Warsaw. He joins a gang of other young children who smuggle and trade goods outside the ghetto in order to survive. Soon he is orphaned and rescued by a famous doctor renowned throughout Europe as an advocate of children's rights. Meanwhile, Treblinka awaits them all. Shepard based the novel on the real-life Janusz Korszak, a Polish children's author, educator, and pediatrician. We began the interview discussing the background for the book of Aaron and how he found conflict in a story that is centered around a historical and real heroic figure. A lot of these projects begin with me not so much lighting on a subject and then uh, rolling up my sleeves and going out and doing research, but stumbling across something in my ordinary reading that catches my attention. In this case, it was a little different in that um, because I write about so many weirdly different things, old friends and old students will often uh, send me little notes or emails saying, hey, how come you never wrote about this? If they come across something they think is strange enough to be Jim Shepard material. In this case, an old student of mine sent me a link about Janusz Korszak, the Polish educator, and said, how come you never written about him? And I'd read about him for years. He was a, a huge figure in the reform of children's education in Western Europe. He sort of introduced the idea that children were human beings and their desires and attitudes should be respected. And he had ended up at the end of what he had hoped would be an illustrious career as an educational reformer and, and just a sort of overall, all-around celebrity in Poland in the 20s and 30s. He was sort of a combination of 
Dr. Spock and Garrison Keillor, maybe somebody like that. He was on the radio and people loved him and he was very funny and he always advocated a certain kind of way of dealing with children. At the end of that career, he was prepared to retire to Palestine and um, the Germans invaded Poland and he thought, well, I can't leave now. So he ended up taking over the, the most important orphanage in Warsaw, which then became the orphanage in the Warsaw Ghetto. And as he um, endured uh, with his children what was going on in the ghetto, the Germans came to him in 1942 and said, because they respected him they, as much as they could respect any Jew, they gave him advance notice that they were going to be liquidating his orphanage. And by that point, nobody was keeping up too much appearances about what it meant to be sent away to Treblinka. And they said, we're, we're going to be uh, liquidating your orphanage, and you're welcome to stay behind because there'll certainly be more children to take care of. And he said, no, if my children are going, I'm going with them. And the Germans said, okay, well, if I were you, I would tell them they're going to a happy place. And he said, no, all of my career has been about treating children with dignity, and so I'm going to tell them exactly where they're going, and I'm going to tell them how we're going to go there. And he ended up leading about 150 children aged 9 to 13 uh, through the ghetto because they had to march to the deportation site. And it turned out that the, it just so happened that the orphanage was on the south side of the ghetto and the deportation site was on the north side. So they had to walk about four hours, three and a half hours, four hours in the heat to get to the deportation site. And they did it in perfect order, essentially. And uh, the Germans had a rule that the Jews who weren't being deported had to come out and watch the ones who were. And so it, it was an astonishing and very moving um, and very transformative site for the Jews who were left behind. It became the sort of basis of the Jewish uprising because the Jews who were left behind realized that if the Germans were taking Korshak, they were probably going to take everybody. And so there was no point in non-resistance anymore. So it was kind of a, a watershed moment in um, Jewish-German relations, but it also was a big moment in Polish history and Polish-Jewish history. And I thought about writing about it for years, but I'd always shied away from the notion of writing about great men or writing about saints because it always felt a little bizarre trying to find a conflict that was commensurate with their greatness. You know, it's like, oh, look, Gandhi has domestic troubles at home or something. You know, And uh, I sort of read a little bit more about Koshak because I was intrigued. And it occurred to me that, in fact... A lot of the children in the orphanage hadn't wanted to be there. It seems like an obvious point, but when you read the few survivor testimonies, they all say, you know, what a wonderful man he was and how delighted they were had to have been around him. And so you're sort of seduced by that a little bit. But you forget that, that these children had, had everything stripped away from them and that the orphanage was an awful place to be. And so they very often, in Korshak's presence, were not sufficiently appreciative of what it was like to have been saved. And that notion of being unable to fully appreciate someone that you know you should be appreciating just because you're in such dire straits, that I felt like I could write about. And so that was my way into the material, it turned out. So when you said earlier that, you know, a lot of your students send you things and they send you something that's like a Jim Shepard story, what, what qualities would you explain that that means? Well, again, one of them is disaster, um, because I do tend to write a lot about disaster. Another is um, extraordinary behavior in the face of disaster, um, whether it's extraordinarily bad or extraordinarily good. And uh, a third is uh, those sorts of disasters that, uh, as I said before, sort of encourage our complicity. I'm also often sent stuff about uh, human hubris, you know, so people will send me things like, oh, look, they just built uh, the largest oil tanker of all time, and it's five times bigger than any other one, and they say it's unthinkable. You know, this sounds like a Jim Shepard story. So you mentioned earlier that you had read about Janusz Korshak before, but he doesn't seem like a figure many people know about in America. 
No, he's not a figure many people know. He's quite famous in Poland and pretty famous in Western Europe. The only reason I had read about him is because I had read from a very early age a lot about the Holocaust. Um, I've always been drawn to catastrophe as a subject, and because I'm interested in our complicity in catastrophe, I'm even more drawn to man-made catastrophe as opposed to, you know, natural disasters that just sort of happen to people. Um, so having read about disaster from a very early age, I, I came across Kurschak pretty early. Because you've had a long career and you're interested in writing about human-made catastrophe and people's behavior in the face of disaster and hubris, I'm wondering if you feel like you've grown philosophically and or existentially over the years from tackling these issues again and again. I think so, um, because I think what you're teaching yourself, what you're always trying to do when you write literary fiction is enlarge the scope of your emotional imagination. You know, you're trying to um, essentially stretch your empathetic imagination. And, and each time you construct a world that seems new but plausible to you, I think you've done that. So I know I'm a smarter and better writer than I was 20 years ago. I might make different mistakes and I might have different limitations. But I don't have any doubts that The Book of Aaron is a stronger novel than my first or second novel. Does tackling these issues change how you live in the world? I think they make me more politically aware and a little bit more politically driven to try and strive against that sense of helplessness that you have. You know, um, one of the reasons that I'm drawn to catastrophe is that it's becoming clear that that's a subject that we're all going to be introduced to uh, forcibly in the 21st century, you know. So if you are interested in tornadoes or if you're interested in floods or if you're interested in those sorts of things, you can't, and you're interested in, in man-made disasters, you can't help but notice that those two, you know, those two spheres that used to be quite separate are, are coming closer and closer in terms of the Venn diagram, you know. Um, as we actually alter our climate enough to bring these things on ourselves. You know? So there's a way in which uh, teaching myself about this feels both like a, at least I'm trying to do something by way of intervention, and it, it helps me combat the sense of powerlessness that you have. Because when you think about these trends, you tend to think, well, it's, it's a long way out, these trends, unless you have children. And then you think, well, they're, gonna, they're clearly going to be impacted by this. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jim Shepard, author of the novel, The Book of Aaron. You were saying earlier that one of the things that was kind of challenging with The Book of Aaron is that you needed to find the conflict. Here you have 
this man who's uh, an expert in child's ed- education and he's running an orphanage and there's nothing to really pick apart about that. So tell me more about searching for the conflict and the tension in the story and how you started to create that. What will happen with a story like that is I'll say I'll be reading uh, or engaging um history or nonfiction or something like that, and I'll say, well, this is obviously, in, in objective terms, a good story um, in that there's compelling narrative and there are important things going on and all of that. Um, but is there some reason why I would want to write about it, as opposed to letting some historian just tell the story? And it's usually that moment when I come across a, a, human, a human dilemma that, in fact, resonates for me in some emotional way that I think, oh, now my imagination is, in fact, engaged by the notion of what it would be like to be in that position. And in the case of somebody like Korshak, notice what he's facing running an orphanage is astonishingly uh, conflict-filled. And I'm reading about it all, and I'm thinking, I find this totally fascinating, but I don't need to write about what it's like to have to be the person who's deciding, do I negotiate with the Germans today about potatoes, or do I leave them alone, you know, that sort of thing. But then I come across this boy who is guilt-ridden for hating somebody who saved his life because his mother said that she would stay alive until he got into the orphanage. Once Korshak accepted the boy into the orphanage, the mother was relieved and died. And so, of course, the boy blamed Korshak for his mother's death. And then the boy understood Korshak was doing all of these things selflessly, but he still couldn't bring himself to appreciate it. That dilemma, which is equally interesting, but apples and oranges, that dilemma, I thought, oh, I'm engaged by that emotionally. Um, I I can imagine myself into that dilemma emotionally. So that's the angle I'm going to come at Korshak from. And that's normally the way I think um, I unearth a conflict that's going to power a, a short story or a novel. So you took this on from the point of view of young Aaron, who has a younger brother, two older brothers, two parents, he eventually loses his entire family. And and really the, the action and the perspective of this story is kind of like these parentless kids, even if they have parents for a little while. It's about the kids and how they're surviving on the street and taking control of their family. So will you talk a little bit about putting this in the children's perspective and what maybe you thought, if anything, you needed to change for the characters or the motion of the story because you were dealing with kids? You know, um, Henry James, in his preface to what Maisie knew, talks about the way kids have perceptions that are way more sophisticated than their vocabulary. And that limitation has always seemed fascinating to me um, because it, it apes a limitation, I think, that we all feel anyway. You know, we want to be able to put stuff into words. We want to be able to express ourselves more fully and we simply can't. And I I love that, the way that that focuses that dilemma for the reader. And I also love the way that issue of how responsible are we um, gets focused as well once you have children above a certain age. Um, you know, if you're writing about a three or four-year-old, the reader says, well, I mean, you can't blame that person for anything. But as soon as you get into the 12 to 13 range, or maybe even a little younger, the reader's in an, in an interestingly uncomfortable position about what constitutes innocence and what constitutes agency and what constitutes sufficient responsibility in, in certain situations. And of course, I'm also drawn to uh, the amount of uh, suffering um, that uh, children undergo as part of being in, in the kinds of meat grinders that history 
serves up, essentially. Um, I'm, I'm always moved by the dilemmas of children. And finally, I like the way, you know, you, you could argue, I think, that the, the people have said about the Holocaust forever that it's the, 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 the enormity and the extremity of the suffering is so great that it uh, sort of uh, turns you into a mute in some ways. You can't find words for what happened. That's a, a, it comes from Adorno's famous stricture that after the Holocaust, you sort of, how do you do art? Um, and um, children are in that situation already in some ways. And so I like I like that parallel as well, the way the, the Holocaust sort of makes children of us all is another way of putting it, I guess. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jim Shepard, author of the novel, The Book of Aaron. During a lot of the story, we see Aaron and his gang, which is composed of other children that he's met. Some have parents, some don't. Just surviving. They're on the streets. Every day, their their rights are being squashed more and more, so their world is becoming more limited. They're basically smugglers and thieves, and they leave the ghetto to try to get food and bring back to their family. I was curious about how kids in those situations actually rise to be stronger than adults? Yeah, it's a great question. One of the things that strikes anyone who deals with children who are left to their own devices, and, you know, I've experienced that as a, as a child and as an adult in terms of talking to kids, and I've also obviously done this kind of research, but one of the things that strikes anybody who deals with kids in those situations is what an unstable and fascinating a combination of uh, resiliency and vulnerability they display. And one of the things that became clear to me in my reading of the ghetto was how many of those kids that had huge disadvantages in the early going um, had big advantages when it came to everybody having the same stuff stripped away from them. Because it was exactly those kids who had had to make their living on the street and had to be super resourceful and had very few advantages who made the transition to the brutality of the ghetto much more easily because they were like, well, this isn't so different than what I was experiencing before. And a lot of the street kids who made it all the way through were, you know, the sort of bad kids, essentially, or the kids who were the teacher's despair, you know, that kind of thing. And the kids who tended to follow the rules and who tended to be the sort of kids who had had any kind of advantages, uh, those kids uh, tended to get swept away very quickly. One of the biggest tensions that came out for me as a reader is this idea of culpability. So Aaron, because he's on the street and he doesn't have many options, his back is against the wall. And this happened to a lot of people. It happens during war, not, and it doesn't happen that much in, in peacetime. So, right. But basically, it's like you you become an informant for us, or we kill you. Or if you become an informant for us, it might turn out that we kill your friends. There's no options. No, there are no good options. And that's certainly one of the things that I think if you're writing about the Holocaust, you need to communicate to somebody at some point. There are very, very few moments in that um, situation where you're confronting either clear options or good options. Um, You're almost always making impossible choices between bad options. Even if, for example, it's something as seemingly innocent as stealing from a fruit vendor to stay alive, uh, well, the you know the fruit vendor needs that food, he needs that money, um, and you're deciding that your need is larger than his. Um, 
and it may well be if you're starving, but it may, who knows? And you're trying to balance that sense of humanity. Uh, there are some things I will not do with the extremity of the situation and the understanding you have that if you make that group of things you will not do too large, uh, you're certain to be swept away. One of the things you, you captured really well, I thought, was the cadence of how Jews speak. When you speak Yiddish, I think there's a different way that you speak and even a different way that you necessarily arrange your words. How did you capture that? How did you find that rhythm? My wife's, my wife's Jewish. I've certainly known a lot of Jewish people. And again, in the case of the research, I'm doing a lot of primary sources. And it also has seemed to me that, that um, Polish Jews um, and, and the Yiddish that was spoken by Poland was slightly different. Um, than the you know most of the Jews I knew were New York Jews um, and you know 20th century 21st century New York Jews so there were similarities and there were differences and I again tried to be as assiduously accurate to those cadences as I could be and I'm glad um, I'm gratified to hear you put it in terms of cadences because very often it isn't diction and it isn't syntax uh, but it is uh, a certain kind of cadence and that is probably also heightened. The sense of that, if you're a sensitive reader, is probably also heightened by a, a certain spareness in the prose. And so, uh, I, I, again, the, the same way I tried to render the, the illusion of, well, this is English, but it sounds like these might be Polish people speaking. Uh, I'm trying to do the same thing with Yiddish as well. One of the things you captured so well was how rough this was on these people physically. They were starving they were sick, they had lice, they had, you know, diseases going through, they didn't have enough water, they didn't have enough food, and it was horrible. But there's no sentimentality about it when Aaron writes about it. It's just fact. Is that hard to take the emotion out of that? Again, it's one of those ways you educate yourself as you educate yourself about the experience historically. And, you know, one of the other problems that you face when you write about something like this is uh, immediately the reader will think, Oh, well, we've all heard this story now, now that the Holocaust has become a kind of mini-genre after Schindler's List. What do you think uh, you would bring to this that, uh, that we don't already know? And one of the things that happens when you research it is you find yourself saying, oh, the, the everyday miseries of what it's like to live with lice and what it's like to live with starvation and what it's like to live with um, insufficient warmth, um, those, those everyday um, agonies are never uh, out of your psyche and they're never because they're every day because they become quotidian they're not emotionally engaged the way we engage them which is oh my god i had the worst possible day yesterday because i had x y and z you know it's like well this is this has been going on for 3 years so i don't i don't relate to it emotionally the way someone in america in the 21st century would relate to it emotionally you talked a little bit earlier about empathy and I'm very fascinated personally on the on the in the role of empathy of the writer and the reader. I, I would say that most times when we talk about fiction on a more critical level, we're always assuming that we have an empathetic reader. Can you just talk about, you know, your views about empathy and, and fiction, either in this work specifically or, or what what you think that relationship is? way of putting it. It's a smart way of putting it, I think, to say we assume we have an empathetic reader, when in fact, I think what a work of 
uh, literature hopes to do is, is in some ways create an empathetic reader. Um, on the one hand, you know, you're hoping a reader will come to it with an open mind and a and a capacity to sort of uh, embrace distant a difference. But on the other hand, you're also saying, well, you've never, you may have never experienced anything like this exactly. So, in some ways. Uh, as a text, I'm going to be providing you with my own operating instructions. Here's how you can come to see that Aaron is simultaneously a failure in his society's eyes and someone you can admire without saying, oh, that's because I have uh, superior values, but just because you're saying, oh, I'm seeing aspects of him um, that they're not able to glimpse or they're not willing to glimpse or whatever, right? So... I think if, in fact, literature is in some ways designed to generate empathy, uh, that must mean that in some ways the process of engaging literature, if it's literature that's functioning correctly, is either in small or large ways increasing our capacity. I know that the books that I've most valued, I have felt emotionally like um, a more um, complicated and uh, usefully tolerant human being after reading them. And that's not because I've encountered paragons that it was clear that I needed to emulate as much as uh, I encountered all sorts of uh, ways in which people got themselves into trouble and I felt compassion for them. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Jim Shepard, author of the novel The Book of Aaron. Can you read a passage from something that influenced you? Uh, sure. One of the things that influenced me as a very young man as I started to teach, was, uh, I, I'd always loved Nabokov once I was in, um, introduced to him in college. And one of the stories that, into, that it influenced me hugely because of the, the, the sort of astonishing brevity with which it dealt with enormous extremes of suffering and tenderness was a story called Signs and Symbols, which is sort of a canonical story, a very short little story. Uh, that Nabokov wrote about a, a suffering elderly couple who are primarily suffering because their son is incurably uh, mentally ill and is trying to harm himself. And one of the passages that really um, stuck with me is uh, a little passage where the mother is musing on how much they've been able to endure. And the passage goes like this. Uh, the, the mother says, it's a sort of close third person, uh, this and much more she accepted, for after all, living did mean accepting the loss of one joy after another, not even joys in her case, mere possibilities of improvement. She thought of the endless waves of pain that for some reason or other she and her husband had had to endure, of the invisible giants hurting her boy in some unimaginable fashion, of the incalculable amount of tenderness contained in the world, of the fate of this tenderness which is either crushed or wasted or transformed into madness, of neglected children humming to themselves in unswept corners, of beautiful weeds that cannot hide from the farmer and helplessly have to watch the shadow of his simian stoop leave mangled flowers in its wake as the monstrous darkness approaches. Um, I'm sure as a, at, very, at a very early age, I thought of uh, that image of children um, with a monstrous dark, darkness approaching um, had a huge effect on me. And, and I've written about young people my whole life, um, so... That, that was probably a very important source for me in some ways. Can you read something you wrote? It could be something that you you changed a lot from first draft or that you found really difficult to write. Sure. 
passage, I think I had to um, mess around with a lot because of the way in which I had to manage the amount of agony in it. Um, this is the passage of Aaron's younger brother's death. Um, and as we were talking about before, it was really a matter of more and more and more stuff being pulled away from it. And you'll see at the very end of it that um, uh, that a lot of its uh, power, what power it has, seems to derive from the reader's understanding of just how much um, did get pulled uh the passage goes, when my mother returned, she found him out of bed and standing in his nightshirt on a chair to look out his window. She warmed his feet and got him back into bed and told him that if he looked outside when he woke, then all of his dreams would escape. She sent me to the kitchen to make him some tea and asked if I thought I could do that much. While I was filling the kettle, I could see them both. She took his hands and called for him to look at her. She said she wanted to tell him a story that it was going to be a long story, and that he needed to stay awake for it. He seemed to come out of a daze and smiled at her. The story was about a poor Jew and a sultan. She said about one of the sultan's decisions, isn't that amazing? And while she was asking him, he died. And that was just something you had to get over and over? Or? Well, for example, in that last stages, um, you know, when you're writing the the, the death of someone who's one of the most important people on earth to your protagonist, you assume at first that you have to write the moment of the protagonist's understanding that the person has died. You assume that you have to write the protagonist's immediate reaction to the person dying. You assume that you have to write the subsequent reaction to the immediate reaction. And I had, I did write all of that stuff. And then more and more and more of it kept getting pared away. And the brutality with which it kept getting pared away I began to understand was analogous to the brutality of the way the ghetto was paring away things from these people. Where do you write? I write in um, an office that's essentially three walls of windows and one huge wall of books in my house that I share with my wife. Uh, the, the office, I mean, not the house. <laughs> and I also have an office at school. And depending on how the writing is going, I'll, I'll alternate between both offices. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? <laughs> I have three beagles, and so uh, when the writing isn't going well, I'll uh, get up from my desk, and you know I'm a, I'm a genius at procrastinating like every other author, and so I'll get up from my desk, and you can see the beagles going, uh-oh, here he comes. The writer, writing isn't going so well. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my wife is my first reader, and I'm her first reader, so we exchange stuff at a very, very early uh, stage. How have you dealt with rejection? Uh, depending on who's rejecting me and, and how much I have invested in the work, I might lie face down on the floor for a while. Um, I try to remember, especially now, as, as the markets are drying up, that it's really um, not exactly a measure of whether the work has any value or not, but just sometimes a measure of any number of other factors that I can't control. And when all else fails, I try to remember what a poet friend of mine said, um, which was, you're much better off getting annoyed than you are getting depressed, because at least annoyed, you're a little more active. And what is your favorite word? Um, I think my favorite word is probably Cretaceous. I've always loved Cretaceous. Um, and as a boy, um, the strangeness of it took me all the way back to a radically different world, and I always appreciated that. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Jim Shepard, author of the novel The Book of Aaron. 
You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.